back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, I am joined by Joshua Yaffa, a correspondent for The New Yorker in Moscow and author of the recent book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Josh has been living in Moscow for quite a while, and for his journalism there, he has uh, been named a fellow at New America, uh, has received the American Academy's Berlin Prize, and is a finalist for the Livingston Award. We're going to talk about the book, about uh, what it means to live and work in Putin's Russia, and how people navigate the compromises that they have to make in their daily lives. It's a fascinating conversation. I encourage you to read the book. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm joined in the studio today by Joshua Yaffa, a correspondent for The New Yorker in Moscow and author of the recently published book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a book about ordinary people in Putin's Russia or how they deal with the reality of living in Putin's Russia. I think there's a perception in the United States that this is a something like a dictatorship. It's repressive. You know, people are under the thumb of the state. The reality is a lot more complicated, right? Exactly. It is all the things you mentioned, but it's also a lot more. And the dichotomy that I found myself butting up against in my own writing, and uh, both as a producer and reader of journalism about Russia, was this notion that the country was split between the Stalin archetype and the Sakharov archetype, that either there were the repressors and the repressees, mm-hmm. and both were locked in this um, interminable kind of existential struggle. Are these the two fires? Uh, not exactly, actually. Um, I think the two fires are something more vague and kind of situationally dependent, depending on the on the person and, and the circumstance. The two fires get more to just the utter kind of existential realities and, and difficulties of navigating um, the compromises that I talk about in the book. But I found that the notion of Russia as repressive state ruled over by Putin and his minions who keep everybody else locked in this cage of repression and propaganda is certainly true to a point, but far from the whole story of Russia. And and the whole story of Russia, I began to realize or, or think, is about the people who navigate that system somewhere in between and, and construct their lives in the shadow of that state or, or within that state and have very recognizable ideas about what they want to achieve with their lives, professional ambitions, personal ambitions, and the way that they have to realize those is through some sort of interaction and oftentimes compromise with the state. And that leaves them somewhere in between. They're, they're neither the Stalin of our story nor the Sakharov. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that those are the two archetypes because even in the Soviet Union, those were the extremes. And for much of the Soviet period, I think most ordinary people found themselves somewhere in between those two archetypes. Um, and notions of the internal immigration, the kind of withdrawal from, from public affairs, uh, the, you know, the debate around the kitchen table, and this sort of a trope about life in the Soviet Union, those things seem to, in some ways, be coming back. Certainly, uh, the notion of internal immigration is, is one of the key themes, I think, of the especially late Putin era, the way that people retreat from the public sphere and into improving or perfecting their personal space, however defined. One of the 
dilemmas, uh, if that's the right word that I talk about in the prologue of the book, is when my friends and acquaintances in Moscow began to work on quite ambitious, large-scale, essentially city beautification projects under Moscow's mayor, uh, Sergei Sabyanin, who's definitely a part and parcel of the Putin system, and has overseen a quite uh, ambitious and, and largely attractive uh, modernization program to really redo the at least surface experience of life in Moscow, making it a more pedestrian-friendly, navigable, European-style city. And a lot of friends and acquaintances in Moscow took jobs working on those projects, demonstrably and, I think, inarguably improving life in small, discrete ways for the city's citizens. But the dilemma they themselves faced and, and would talk about in conversations I would overhear among themselves is how essentially permissible or virtuous is it to lend one's talents, expertise, time, resources, all of it, to a system in which, in its large scale, you definitely do not uh, believe or support. These were people who were, to a man or a woman, in some way or another, critics of the Putin system and um, of uh, Putin as an individual politician and, and the government that he has come to represent. But nonetheless, they felt like the chance to improve life in a very self-contained, demonstrable way was worth the compromise of going to work for a larger system or state that they didn't necessarily believe in. And that is one of the many forms of the kind of internal immigration I think you talk about, abstracting away from the big picture over which you have little or no control and concentrating on the immediate world around you. Yeah. And I think that that's a common dilemma in a lot of places. I mean, you think about uh, the United States at a time of great political polarization. And I think a lot of people face a, a similar dilemma. And you're talking to friends and acquaintances here in Washington, I think there's a similar sense of, you know, I should focus on uh, literally and figuratively cultivating my garden in ways that can help my community, that can uh, do things for my friends and, and family and acquaintances, regardless of, of what I think about about the, the government and the, and the state and what it's doing. And so maybe this notion of convergence that was talked about so much during the Cold War is in some ways coming back. Absolutely. Or, the, or another version of that, which is people who in the Washington context, say, find the Trump administration and Trump specifically troublesome, to put it mildly, if not outright loathsome, but nonetheless feel like they owe it to the greater good, to their fellow citizens, to join that administration to lend their expertise and mm -hmm. talents and abilities on some specific policy question where they feel like in their absence that policy question might be decided differently and worse. Maybe, if nothing else, they can prevent the doomsday scenario on their particular discrete mm -hmm. policy question. And that's worth swallowing their pride, let's say, or, or going against their moral compass in the abstract or in the macro scale because they can achieve some micro good that they think it's worth it. That's a compromise that, in my understanding, you live here and, and have much more day-to-day -day experience with it, that it's becoming more and more prevalent in Washington and is very resonant of the kinds of compromises that I encountered for my book. 
Yeah, well, we're not talking about American politics here, but my own experience with this has been that there was a very strong inclination in that direction at the beginning of the Trump era. And as time has gone on, more and more of those people have you know, found themselves paying a larger price morally as well as in some cases personally and politically. And that kind of Faustian bargain has become less attractive. I think there are still people, of course, career civil servants first and foremost, who are faced with that every day. But for people who have uh, options, it's I think you're seeing it less now. But again, because, you know, the United States, there is this notion that the government changes and that there is public agency uh, or uh, civic agency that ordinary people have um, in a way that maybe in a country like Russia, they don't have. It's a little bit easier to walk away and say, I'm not going to be part of this system. I'm going to participate in a process to try and change it in, you know, November 2020. Right. And also in Russia, the state penetrates and really dominates so many spheres of life that uh, remain in the U.S. Sort of more diversified with diversified centers of power financing, uh, which is a huge issue. One of the characters I write about is the theater director, Kirill Serebnikov, mm -hmm. who was celebrated and supported for a while by the Putin state right. in this short-lived period when the Putin state had an interest in funding and, and really um, elevating avant-garde experimental art forms. And Serebnikov was a real beneficiary of that even though his own political tastes ran very counter to those of the Putin system and was, in fact, an outward public oppositionary voice to the Putin system, even as he took their money. I think that alone is a very interesting and telling dynamic of the mm -hmm. way things work in, in Putin's Russia. But as one of his peers in the world of, of theater and culture explained to me about how and why Serebnikov ended up taking the state money to mm -hmm. make uh, films and, and, and theater productions, even as he had some sort of internal or even quite public resistance to that state. It came down really to just the inevitability of how the financial model works, let's say, in the right. cultural world in Russia. Right. And the what other patron are you going to find? Right. The friend said to me, it's not a question of, do you want to make a movie with state money or without? That would be maybe an easy question. You would take the moral high road and say, I'm going to do this independently. I'm not going to take any money from the Ministry of Culture, say. Well, that's not the way it works in Russia. There's just no such reality. The question, as the person put it to me, is do you want to make a film at all or not? And if you do, and making a film is a totally understandable, admirable thing to pursue in life, if you are a director, then one should want to make films, right. realize your creative talents and, and vision and all the rest. And if the only path to doing that lies through the state and taking the state's check with the implication that you will, to some degree... And here the question of compromise comes in and how you choose to personally navigate it. But nonetheless, there are some strings attached, whether you choose to fully acknowledge those strings and, and how you try and soften them, avoid them, play subtle games to make them work more in your favor rather than less. That's a separate question. But in the case of someone like Serebnikov being a cultural figure, someone with no direct political or policy ambitions, nonetheless, he found himself in this inevitable dance of compromise with the state. Right. And one that turned out poorly for him. Yes. Though he's had a second and third and who knows <laughs> uh, how many more acts to come, having ended up under house arrest, accused of large-scale embezzlement with a jail, potential jail term of many years. He's since been freed from that house arrest and his case seems all but closed. And so perhaps the sword of Damocles that was hanging over him for some time has been removed for reasons as opaque 
as the initial appearance of the sword was in, in the first place. Right. So since we were talking about the the Soviet experience, I mean, I'm curious how much the people that you interact with and, and interview are, are conscious that they're in some ways recreating the Soviet model of, of the relationship to the state. How directly do they see themselves drawing on strategies and tactics of survival from, from that period? I think consciously not very much. And that's probably normal to any state or society, right? I don't know how much of my day or yours, we are consciously thinking about, you know, where am I drawing on the, you know, lessons of the founding fathers? Where am I drawing on the... Um, well, I, I have a PhD in history, so I do that all the time. But I realize I may be kind of an outlier. <laughs> well, lucky you, perhaps. But I, I certainly live in um, ignorance of, you know, where I'm uh, drawing on the founding fathers, where I'm drawing on the legacy of the civil rights movement of the 60s, you know, where I'm influenced by the post-Vietnam hangover, even though I was born long after the end of the Vietnam War. All these things are obviously ever-present in how I navigate the world, but far from my consciousness. And I think something similar is true in, in Russia. The society is extremely shaped by the Soviet experience. I think specifically the decline and ultimately collapse of the Soviet state, the latter years of the Soviet Union, which were dominated by a kind of cynical, wily is the mm -hmm. term I use in the book, doublethink, became a widespread, if not universal, modus vivendi in how people understood and navigated their own position in right. state and society. You say the right things in public and then outside of the public sphere, you do what you want. Right. But a kind of double thing that became so natural that I'm not sure it was even consciously understood as such. And it became a the default in, in, in a way, most comfortable way of navigating the world. And I think much of that um, has stuck or, or remained persistent without people necessarily reflecting on it or, or, or being aware of it. And certainly the Putin system, Putin and, and, and the political architects around him of his system are probably more aware of that. And I think have cleverly played to it and understood that it's a powerful personality type and one that's easily manipulated for their political ends and has proved to be quite a comfortable and advantageous personality type uh, for the Putin system and one they've done a lot, I think, to foster and propagate. So one of the big differences uh, between the Soviet era, at least up until the very end of it, is that people who are uncomfortable with the current system today have the option of leaving. Um, emigration is is a way out of, of some of the dilemmas that you discuss in the book. What sort of reasons do people who are very openly critical of, of the system um, give for choosing not to immigrate. Of course, there are family considerations, personal considerations, the kind of, you know, things that would always be there. But is there anything um, in terms of their relationship to society or their views of, of politics in the state that sort of influence the decision to stay and, and make these kind of compromises rather than just pack up and leave? Well, I think emigration is always going to be a somewhat fringe option in any society. I mean, that takes a great deal of fortitude, wherewithal, resources that just in any context are going to belong to, I think, a pretty overwhelming minority of any cultures or, or societies. Um, citizenry in Russia, in that case, is no different, especially in the case of the people I write about, who are, I think, a degree above ordinary, let's say. This mm -hmm. isn't quite just your average run-of-the-mill yeah, sort exactly. of vox pop mm -hmm. sort of book. It's actually people who rose to my attention and some... Uh, Ones who would have the option of leaving. Potentially, though, though, when we get to a case like, say, Serebnikov, the theater director, he was 
the most celebrated avant-garde theater director of his generation. Could mm-hmm. put a play on any stage he wanted in Russia. Uh, acclaimed production after production, had offers to make films, was putting on plays at Emchat, uh, Moscow's most prestigious and storied theater. And even though he was this kind of rebel avant-garde figure, as we talked about for a while, even enjoyed the state's largesse and, and was given no small degree of funding from the state, not just for individual performances, but to put on whole festivals of contemporary theater. What would he be or who would he be in Berlin or London or New York? He probably wouldn't have no profile. It wouldn't quite be the you know sad tale from the late Soviet era of the nuclear physicist driving a taxi cab. But nonetheless, he wouldn't occupy anything like that same position or profile in society. And especially for someone who works in the cultural sphere, being removed from language is already a huge loss before we get into questions of one's, you know, kind of societal uh, position and, and, and all of that. For an artist, losing uh, his or her language is, is already a big blow to creative output. And so in the case of someone like Serebnikov, even as the noose was tightening, the fact that there were these investigations and, and likely criminal charges circulating around him and his theater company relating to questions of embezzlement of, of state funds, which had a clear political motive, even if the political motive was not totally understood. It seemed mm-hmm. to come from that realm. He had the option to leave. Uh, and people warned him and suggested wouldn't he might want to do that. And he didn't. I think because he couldn't quite imagine himself in a new foreign place without his position that he had earned through his talents and smarts and ambition and dedication, discipline. And I think that's true for a lot of the characters in my book, certainly, who had managed to achieve something within the Putin system. Who would Konstantin Ernst, the head of Channel One, an all-powerful television and media demigod in Russia, who really is sitting atop the power hierarchy in his field, who would he be in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite a nobody, but certainly not someone right. with um, almost unlimited powers to realize his creative vision. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about figures like Ernst because, okay, the artistic intelligentsia, the theater directors, obviously their relationship to the state is complicated and ambiguous. But for somebody whose job is literally promoting the view of the state in television, somebody like Konstantin Ernst, does he have this same sort of sense of ambiguity, compromise, wiliness, as you put it, as somebody who sort of sits outside that system, but is in some ways dependent on it? Right. Uh, That's a good question and a good distinction to draw, because someone like Serebnikov, who we talked about, another character in the book, uh, Dr. Liza, a really beloved humanitarian worker and doctor who used the state's largesse to help those who were victimized by the war in eastern Ukraine, they had to navigate one set of compromises. As you say, people who were essentially, were ultimately outside the system, but but used the system to further their own ends and aims, which I think we could say were largely virtuous or at least understandable what they wanted to achieve, and they, and they chose to do so through some form of compromise with the state. Someone like Ernst is very different because he's part and parcel of the system. He's an insider. He's not in a tactical uh, alliance with the state to achieve some particular end. He's really in it because I think, frankly, he believes in it. And that makes his compromise different and maybe less than someone like Serebnikov or 
Dr. Lisa because he's not actually engaged in the same kind of dissonance, say, mm-hmm. that I think someone like Srebnikov was who used state money to make films and theater plays that were implicitly or explicitly of critical of the state. Yeah. Um, Ernst was described to me by a friend of his as someone who was an intellectual and an esthete, but not a liberal. And I think that's an important and kind of pithy description of who he is and who he's not. So often, at least in my life, those three terms go together and become, in some sense, indistinguishable, and I don't necessarily parcel, uh, parse the difference between them. But mm-hmm. in Ernst's case, they are distinct attributes, or at least being an intellectual and an esthete doesn't necessarily necessitate him to be a liberal, and he can actually be both of those things without being a liberal. And so he has a high degree of aesthetic credibility and, and, and standards and rigor, even as he can be a sort of fully bought-in mm-hmm. member of the Putin system and believe in that system and in Putin himself. What initially seemed to me like a contradiction, thinking about how could someone who is a cultural sophisticate, an esthet, someone who likes German art house films and decided to air the quirky offbeat U.S. television show Fargo on Channel One in primetime, which was certainly must have been very weird for most of Channel One's <laughs> viewers who are used to a very right. different kind of programming. Ernst has these art house tastes, which so often I associate with someone with liberal political leanings and not necessarily liberal in an American sense, right. uh, but liberal in a kind of the, the classic understanding or definition of liberalism. But he's not. And um, that made him, makes him a very fascinating to me character. But I also think makes his compromise different and, and perhaps ultimately less than some of the other characters in the book. Does he acknowledge feeling compromised or that he has to in some ways trim his sails uh, in order to achieve the kind of success that he achieved? To a degree. Not as much as I think is actually the case. My suspicion is there's a lot more going on, even with all of the access and veneer of kind of conversational intimacy he gave me in mm-hmm. our conversations, which were multitude and happened over a course of days and were quite extensive. I still think there was a lot that was left unsaid or that he softened the edges of because he is, at the end of the day, a very skillful political operator who knows how to navigate power and the the requirements of power in the Putin system. I mean, he's been in the job even longer than Putin's been in his. So he's really a (laughs) survivor of that system. Nonetheless, there were some moments where he allowed that sometimes he gives in and airs more rote or visually uninteresting what could fairly be called propaganda on his channel than he might like. He might favor something more sophisticated and highbrow, but every now and then the requirements of the job are such that you have right. to put on the propaganda schlock. Mm-hmm. He used the term... As everybody who's ever you know gone to art school and then gone to work for a television station anywhere in the world has probably experienced. Right, right. In that case, his compromise, you know, maybe... Uh, not not so different in in kind um, than than those um, who work in media elsewhere. You know, he referred to this programming that he has to air as parquet, parquet, referring to the wooden floors of Russian bureaucratic offices. So whenever you see on Channel One this shot of Putin sitting across the desk from some minister or governor mm-hmm. with the wooden floor right. underneath right. them, that's what Ernst calls par- parquet, and is a genre that. He says he finds not the, let's say, highest art form, but nonetheless, he can't entirely do without on Channel One. 
Right. And, you know, it, it's it's interesting that people like Ernst were, were willing to give you the kind of, of access that they did and don't feel that, you know, doing so would pose a risk to them, uh, which also, I think, says something interesting about the, the Putin system and how, you know, there are these opportunities for saying things and, and speaking out. And it's really a question of figuring out how to navigate what is and isn't allowed. Yeah. You know, I was pleasantly surprised by the degree of access that people like Ernst and others gave me. Um, I think for some, it was an interesting exercise to verbalize and and articulate the kinds of compromises that I was asking people about and for them to get uh, a chance to explain why and how they make the choices they do and and why it's ultimately worth it or at least necessary. I don't want to ascribe to my reporting process a degree of catharsis that I gave my subjects, but maybe there was... Something, something to that. There, you know, there aren't many people who show up and say, you know, I want to listen for as long as it will take for you to explain why it is you make the difficult choices you do that in the case of, say, Ernst or Dr. Lisa, who sadly died in 2016, she was killed in a plane crash. So it was left to her husband and, and her friends and supporters to explain this to me. But, but she was so often criticized in the later years of her life for her tactical alliance with the state. And there were a lot of people who wanted to explain why that was necessary or okay or what so many Russian liberals who came to speak ill of Dr. Lisa didn't understand about her work and the position she was in. So there were a number of characters who I think felt interested if maybe some sort of relief or satisfaction in being able to narrate those dynamics to someone who was genuinely interested in them. Just out of curiosity, is the book going to come out in Russian? Unclear. Uh, There's a few Russian publishers who are looking at it, reading. I genuinely think the concern there is commercial rather than political. I think that's also an interesting and important dynamic to understand about how censorship and soft censorship in Russia work. Although the two things often are related, say, in the question of a Russian media outlet like Dost, the independent television channel, they are often in quite dire or pressurized financial straits which threaten the survival of the channel. Nominally, that comes from the fact that they say can't get on as many Russian cable providers as they'd like, so the audience is smaller than it otherwise might be, and therefore they get less advertising revenue than they otherwise could. That's a nominally commercial question, but with ultimately political political, undertones, uh, undertones because the reason they can't get on as many Russian cable providers as they'd like is because there are political barriers to that. So long answer to your question, I think the Russian publishers are first and foremost weighing it as a commercial prospect. Are there readers in Mm -hmm. Russia for a translated book about Russia by an American back Mm -hmm. into Russian? Uh, maybe not, um, uh, but I think it, in, in that case, it, you know, it's going to come down to the you know, marketing team more than concerns about what will the Kremlin say. Yeah. So as an American journalist doing this project in Russia, how did people respond um, when you reached out and said that you wanted to, to talk to them about these topics? Did they you know, look at you as an American? Did they see you as sort of an avatar of you know, some kind of inexplicable American interest in, in, in the topics that you were writing about? Did they see you as, you know, somehow connected to the American intelligence agencies, perhaps, or, or, you know, somehow compromised in your own way? I think that my position as an American was definitely an aid in, in writing this book and really just in doing my work 
as a journalist in Russia more more broadly, that I am seen as and, and, and am uh, an outsider, and I'm not part of the kind of processes that I'm writing about, and I'm sort of free of the expectations and habits and strictures that govern relations, not just between Russian Russians and the state, but among Russians right. themselves. I'm allowed a kind of free pass. Mm -hmm. You don't work for any particular clan or interests. And I, yeah, I, just, I don't fit into the conceptual framework in which Russians understand their society themselves, their fellow citizens, and all the kind of responsibilities or, or um, expectations that flow out of each of those kind of categorical positions. I'm outside of them and therefore allowed, I don't want to say access in the sense it's not like therefore, you know, Kremlin officials invite me for the secret meetings. Right. Not at all. The, the opposite of that. I have very little access in that sense, but maybe a kind of emotional access at least to the characters I write about because I hope I projected an, an air of someone who is free of judgment and with a genuine, naive curiosity, wanted to understand. In the case of someone like Dr. Lisa, she was a very polarizing figure in Russia. People either supported her and thought mm -hmm. she was a saint, or the opposite, thought by her later years she had sold out in some morally unforgivable way. And if you knew anything about Dr. Lisa, you had one of those two positions. I had neither. I mean, I, 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 was, I, I didn't, because I was kind of free of the mm -hmm. categorical allegiances or requirements right. that govern relations, you know, inside Russian society, I was able to approach her or rather her husband and her friends as supporters as someone who didn't have either of those preconceived notions about her. And I think that helped very much and certainly in the reporting of that chapter, but also as a way of how I navigated my reporting and, and research relationships throughout the book and that I and still don't and still emerged from writing the chapter about Dr. Lisa, writing all the chapters without having passed some final conclusive moral judgment on them. I'm not sure I could tell you, is Ernst good or bad? Is Dr. Lisa good right. or bad? I, I well, yeah, as an outsider who doesn't face some of those pressures, that's a very hard judgment to make. Right, right. But I think the fact that I wasn't there to reach those sorts of conclusions and was very open about that with my subjects helped them open up to me. The point of spending time with them was not so I could then, at the end of the process, declare them right. good or bad. And they... I, think and, and hope they re felt that and understood that. And in the end, that aided them in, in feeling comfortable and opening up to me. Okay, great. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks for joining. That is it for our show today. You can find a link to Josh's bio uh, in the show notes, as well as a link to uh, where you can buy a copy of his book. Of course, you can also get the book at your local bookstore. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Yaffaesque. That's at Y-A-F-F-A-E-S-Q-U-E. For those of you who haven't already, uh, please subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out uh, on Google Play or SoundCloud, where you can also subscribe. Keep listening and keep spreading the word. And uh, keep sending mailbag questions. You can email them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We look forward to hearing from you, and we're going to do another mailbag segment here soon. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. As always, big thank you to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and IOM team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.